I want to welcome you back to our series throughout the book of Acts. And we are learning that the book of Acts is, is more than just a collection of stories of the actions of the apostles and how the gospel of Jesus Christ spread from Jerusalem throughout the world. Uh, it is all of those things, but it's also a call to action in your life. It's a call to action in my life and in our local church here today. And one of the greatest calls to action that you'll find, not only in the book of Acts, but throughout the New Testament, is a call to change. You'll notice that's the title of our sermon this morning. If you're taking notes, I would encourage you to uh, follow along on the notes page that you either have in front of you when you got in, or maybe the digital notes, you might want to follow along there. We talk about a call to change. I want to just begin by getting you thinking about change. If, if you had... If you had the power to change something in the world, now you don't have to say out loud what it would be, but I wonder if you would say, yeah, I could probably think of one or two things that I would change in the world. Show me your hands. If there's something in the world, you would change. Okay, me too. There's something. There's probably more than one thing about, uh, that's happening in the world or, or, or something you could identify. I would change this. How about this? Is... Is there something in the life... Now, please do not answer this one out loud. Uh, is there something in the life of someone else? Maybe it's a friend. Maybe it's a family member. It might be someone in your pew. Don't answer out loud. Is, is there something in the life of someone else that if you had the power to change it, you would change it? Yes? Uh, some of you are lying by not putting your hand up. Sure, there are things in the lives of other people that if we had the power to change it, we would change it. I want you to know that for, for some of you, uh, your prayers have been answered. Some of you have been committed, and I mean committed, to praying for years now that this deep-seated hatred, this this uh, whatever, this anguish in, in my heart towards cats, that God would deliver me from it by His grace. So your prayers have been answered. Oh, well, you're starting to, okay. So this is me and a real-life cat, all right? This is Kirby the cat, all right? And... Uh, the owner of this cat can vouch that this cat loves me, all right? This cat thinks I'm amazing. So me and, and the cat, Kirby, we're now best friends. Uh, so your prayers have been answered. There has been a change in my life. How's that? Now, I will also tell you this. You have to be very careful what you pray for because this is what happened 15 minutes later from my allergies to cats. No, I'm just kidding. I wouldn't have to go to the, uh, the, to the hospital. I just had to leave the house. About 15, 20 minutes is about all I can be around cats before my eyes start to water and I sneeze and I get kind of weird to be around. Uh, so I'm just kidding about that. But uh, we did have a nice time with that, with that visit. So your prayers, have, uh, your prayers have been answered. Listen, it, it's not hard for us to look around the world and find things that we could point to and say, man, I wish... I wish this would change. I wish someone would change it. I wish if there was a way I could change it, I would. It's not hard for us to even look at the lives of other people, maybe people that you work with, 
uh, people within your family context, people, uh, it, it doesn't, it doesn't, it's not hard for us to look around and, and point to flaws or shortcomings in the lives of other people that we would say, man, your life, my life would be way better if this, if this would change in your life. But here's what I want to ask, and I'm asking you to consider a different question. It's this. What if we ask the question, how often do we, do we pause and ask the question, what about me? What needs to change in your life? What, I need to ask the question, what needs to change in my life? What needs to change in me? And it might be an attitude. It could be a priority, a misplaced priority, or something that we place uh, such great value on that really isn't that valuable in comparison to something else that we are ignoring that is of greater priority, that is of greater value. Maybe it's a behavior that does not reflect a Jesus-centered life. You know it, I know it, but it's hard to change. Maybe it is a lack of respect that a wife is showing or not showing, in this case, towards her husband. Maybe it is a lack of unconditional love that's, that's not, it's not being demonstrated from a husband to his wife like it should. Maybe we could be more generous. Maybe we could be less self-centered. Maybe we could be more gracious people. Maybe we could be people that uh, are not as quick to anger as we are. And I just want to say this, if you just listen to that list, and in your mind, you just listen to me go through all these possibilities, and you, in your mind, you thought, boy, I hope that so-and-so is listening to this sermon. No, I'm challenging you to, to redirect your thoughts, to ask yourself, what needs to change in me? What needs to change in you? I want to ask you to join me in Acts chapter 9. We're going to look at a story this morning of a radical change in the life of a man named Saul. Now, we've, we've been introduced to Saul briefly when we talked about the story of Stephen. Stephen was stoned to death for being a follower of Christ, an outspoken, bold follower of Jesus. And in the background of his murder was Saul holding the coats for those who were throwing the rocks. And when we looked at the story of Philip, we saw uh, Saul was in that story as well, approving uh, of the persecution that was going on. So after Stephen is killed, persecution starts to happen among the believers, and they have to scatter, Philip being one of them. And Saul was one who was dragging Christians, men and women, out of their homes and putting them in prison. And so we've already been introduced to Saul a little bit. When it says in, in verse 1, the very first word, meanwhile, so we're picking back up with Saul. We've talked about Stephen, we talked about Philip, and in the background of all of these really hard things that have been happening to Christians, in the background is Saul. It says in verse 1 that Saul was uttering threats with every breath. You might even have the, the added word murderous threats. With every breath, 
He was eager to kill the Lord's followers. And so Saul, he, he went to the high priest and he requested letters addressed to the synagogues in Damascus. He wanted permission. He wanted their cooperation in the arrest of any followers of the way, before they were called believers or Christians, they were known as people of the way. Uh, remember Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and life. So that's how they were identified at that time. And he wanted, he wanted to gather up and arrest and put in prison believers in Jesus Christ, followers of Christ, bring them both, men and women, back to Jerusalem. What do we really know about Saul? Well, we don't have all the information about him in these couple verses. We, we know some more about him because of some of the things that were written by uh, Saul himself, who would later be known as Paul. Uh, we, we know from some of the letters that he wrote to, church, to the church in Corinth, to the church in Philippi. We, we find out he was born in Tarsus. But he was most likely raised in Jerusalem. So he was a Roman citizen as well as a Jewish citizen. And that will, that will play a part later on in his life when he's on trial for uh, proclaiming the gospel. We'll maybe circle back to that at the end of our study. He was a son of a Pharisee. And so this was his whole life. The Jewish law was his whole life. And, and uh, he was trained under Gamaliel. Now, for most of us, that name doesn't mean a whole lot. Gamaliel was a highly respected Jewish law professor of the day. And so to be trained under him, I would put it like this. Imagine being trained in American constitutional law by a Justice Scalia or a Justice Thomas, those who not only understand the Constitution, but can communicate it very clearly and, and just highly respected. If you don't know who those people are, imagine being trained in, in baseball by Derek Jeter. The sports people in the room might know that reference. Imagine being trained in children's television production by Mr. Rogers. Are you getting it? If you don't know who any of those people are, imagine the top expert in whatever field you're interested in. Who, who's at the top of that? Imagine being mentored or trained under that person. That's Gamaliel. And that's who mentored, that's who trained Saul. Saul followed the law of Moses to the letter. And he was convinced that he was in the right when it came to what he believed about Jesus, he rejected Jesus as the Messiah. And he absolutely believed he was in the right. And so he was trying to stamp out Jesus' followers, and he thought, he absolutely believed, he thought he was doing the right thing. Saul was about to find out that he was in the wrong and that he needed to change. Go back to verse 3. He was approaching Damascus on this mission. What mission? To go to Damascus, find any followers of Christ, arrest them, put them in chains, drag them back to Jerusalem and put them in prison and then whatever comes next. As he was approaching Damascus on this mission, a light from heaven suddenly shone down around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, 
Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. And the voice replied, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. Men with Saul, they stood speechless. They, they heard the sound of someone's voice, but they saw no one. And Saul picked himself up off the ground. When he opened his eyes, he was blind. So his companions led him by the hand to Damascus, and he remained there blind for three days and did not eat or drink. You want to talk about turning the tables on someone? He was, he was headed there in charge. He was headed there with great authority and power to drag people uh, and, and chain them up and, and, and drag them back to Jerusalem into prison. But instead, Jesus humbles him. He's blind and he has to have someone lead him. And Jesus says, no, 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 uh, I'm going to tell you what you're going to do. Saul's life is about to change in a very noticeable, radical way by the transforming power of the Holy Spirit. If you are not familiar with this entire story, I, I want to challenge you to sit down. You can read this story uh, at home this week. It won't take you long. It's, it's, it's a fascinating story. Some of the highlights that I, that I think are important God, in, in the next scene, sends this man named Ananias, a believer living in Damascus. His name is Ananias. And God said, I want you to go down to this house. There's this man named Saul there. I want you to pray with him. And Ananias' response is great. I love it. He's so, he's so honest about this whole situation with God. He's like, uh, Lord, I've heard of this guy. Uh, this is the guy who, who was dragging men and women out of their homes in Jerusalem, putting them in prison, and now he's here in Damascus to do the same thing. That, that's the guy? Are you sure that's what you want me to do? And, and the Lord says, yes, that's, that's what I want you to do. And, and he did. He went and he, he prayed with Saul. Saul received his sight back. He was baptized by the Holy Spirit because of his faith in Jesus Christ. He then was baptized by water. As a follower of Jesus Christ, his life is radically changed because of Jesus. And we see that change starting in verse 20. Listen to this. So he's in, he's in Damascus. He stays there a few days. And it says, immediately he began to preach about Jesus in the synagogues. You know, the synagogue that he was going to go to with, with uh, paperwork giving him the authority to arrest Christians. Yeah, he's going now to the synagogue to defend uh, that Jesus is the Messiah. Immediately he began to preaching about Jesus in the synagogue, saying he is indeed the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed. And they said, isn't this the same man who caused such devastation, such havoc among Jesus' followers in Jerusalem? Didn't he, didn't he come here to arrest them and take them in chains to the leading priests? Saul's preaching became more and more powerful. The Jews in Damascus could not refute his proofs that Jesus was indeed the Messiah. After a while, some of the Jews actually plotted together to kill him. This change in Saul's life 
radical, it's noticeable, and it's understandable why some of them were suspicious at first. I think that's normal. I mean, trust is something that uh, it has to be earned. Trust is something that has to be developed. Now, forgiveness is something, you know, grace is something that we're to give away freely, but, but trust is something, especially if it's broken, uh, oftentimes it, it just takes time to build. You have to earn that with people. So I, I totally get why they're suspicious. But his change was so profound that, that there's even Jews in Damascus that start to conspire against Saul. Saul uh, goes back to Jerusalem. He started preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ in Jerusalem. And same thing happened there. There's people that are like, wow, this is, is this the same guy? The, the same guy that was, was wanting to murder Christians and now, now he's saying Jesus is, is the Messiah? I don't know if he's legit. And it took, uh, Barnabas had to uh, stick up for him and he had to vouch for him like, to the apostle. No, it's, it's legit. He's, this is real. It's a radical change in his life. And eventually it became unsafe for Saul in Jerusalem. And so he went back to his hometown of Tarsus. And that's where Dr. Luke, who's writing the book of Acts, he hits pause on, on Saul's story and he switches back to Peter's story. But I don't want you to miss verse 31 uh, of chapter, chapter 9. 31 says the church had then had peace throughout Judea, Galilee, Samaria. It became stronger. Just pause. Why is there peace now? Well, the, the main catalyst of the one who was pushing, we've got to stamp out these Jesus followers, the guy who was pushing that now comes back from Damascus saying, oh, actually, Jesus is, is truly the Messiah. And now he's out of the picture as far as uh, trying to push this agenda of destroying Christians. And the result is, the, the church had peace throughout Judea, Galilee, Samaria. It just tells you how effective Saul was in what he had been doing. And now the church became stronger. All the believers lived in fear of the Lord and with the encouragement of the Holy Spirit. And it also grew in numbers. Now, just so you know, if, if you don't already, this is not a, and they all lived happily ever after type of sentence. Uh, it's not going to stay that way. There is going to be persecution coming. But certainly, we take this snapshot. What a beautiful snapshot of this moment in the life of the church. So you can see the smiles and the hearts filled with joy, and things are good. Saul's story is this, this powerful example of a call to change. And I just think it's, it's an amazing and wonderful picture of the message of the gospel and how it calls you and I to change. And, and the New Testament is, is full of examples of this call of God on your life and on my life to change. I just want to give you a, a small sampling of that. If you go to Romans chapter 6, Romans chapter 6, This verse, this passage is written to the believer, the one who has trusted Christ as his or her personal Savior. And it says this, Well then, should we keep on sinning so that God can show us more and more of His wonderful grace? What's the question 
implying? It's implying there is, there's this choice. Do we, do we stay the same? We say we trust Christ as our Savior, our eternal hope, our salvation from sin, our salvation from hell. So should we just keep living our lives the same way we always have, or should there be a change? That's what the question is implying. And the answer, uh, should we keep on sinning? His answer is, of course not. There should be change in our lives. Since we have died to sin, how can we continue to live in it? There should be change. Or have you forgotten that when we were joined with Christ in baptism, we joined Him in His death? For we died and were buried with Christ by baptism. And just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, now we also may live new lives. New lives implying what? Change. Since we have been united with Him in His death, we will also be raised to life as He was. We, we know that our old sinful selves were crucified with Christ so that sin might lose its power in our lives. We're no longer slaves to sin, for when we died with Christ, we were set free from the power of sin. And since we died with Christ, uh, we know we will also live with Him. We're sure of this because Christ was raised from the dead, and He will never die again. Death no longer has any power over Him. When He died, He died once to break the power of sin. But now that He lives, He lives for the glory of God. So... You also should consider yourselves to be dead to the power of sin and alive to God through Christ Jesus. Don't let sin control the way you live. Do not give in to sinful desires. Do not let any part of your body become an instrument of evil to serve sin. Instead, give yourselves completely to God, for you were dead, but now you have new life. So use your whole body as an instrument to do what is right for the glory of God. Sin is no longer your master, for you no longer live under the requirements of the law. Instead, you live under the freedom of God's grace. And he asks the question again, based on everything he just said, well, since God's grace has sent us free from the law, does that mean we should and can keep go on sinning? And his answer again is, of course not. There needs to be change. And we see this um, many times throughout the, the, the New Testament. Romans 8.5 talks about those who are dominated by the sinful nature. They think about sinful things. Those who are under the control of the Spirit, they think about the things that matter to the Holy Spirit. And it goes on uh, in that chapter to talk about this change that happens in our lives as every day we choose to surrender our minds, our thoughts, our, our, our decisions uh, to the control of the Holy Spirit rather than to sin. There is a change that happens in us. Look at this in Romans 12 too. This is one of, the, one of the greater verses throughout Scripture when it talks about transformation and change. Romans 12 too, Do not copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you. That's a word of change. Transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. When, when our, the way we think changes, the way we speak changes. When the way we think changes, our attitudes and our behaviors, the way we respond to situations in life, it all changes. That happens in relationship with Jesus Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. Galatians chapter 5 
goes on to talk about, you, know, you can write these verses down. I think I might have them written in, uh, on your outline there. Galatians 5, 16 to 25, and then again in Ephesians chapter 5, talking about the Holy Spirit, surrendering to the Holy Spirit. Rather than to sin, there lists a bunch of different sins, and then the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, self-control, all these kind of things, there is a stark difference between the two. And, and, and the argument that Paul is making is we're not to stay uh, in, in bondage to sin. Once we're saved, the Holy Spirit lives in us, gives us uh, power to change, to go through this process of, of being emptied of the sinful desires, the sinful behaviors, and instead being obedient to God through the power of the Spirit. And it just results in a better life. There's instructions on, I'll just give you one example. When you go through the Old Testament, New Testament, and there's this instructions for life. There are principles, there are boundary lines, there are standards that God gives us. One, one simple example would be in marriage. In Ephesians chapter 5, 22 to 33, there's a, a simple instruction for, for how a husband ought to love his wife with unconditional love, demonstrate sacrificial love the same way that Jesus uh, sacrificially love the church. And there's a challenge for wives to, to show unconditional respect towards their husbands. It's a wonderful, beautiful passage about marriage. And as a husband, if, if we are reading that passage in Ephesians 5 and we say, oh, I don't measure up to that, then we need to change. And, and if a, a, a woman, if a wife is reading that passage and saying, I'm not measuring up to that level of respect towards my husband, right? It's a call to change. And you can go throughout Scripture and see the standards and the boundary lines and the principles, all of these things. It's, it's not, if we don't match up to those things, it's not God who needs to bend. It's not God who needs to change. It's you and it's me. We're the ones who need to change. I love 2 Timothy 3.16. It says, all Scripture is God-breathed. All Scripture is God-breathed, and it's useful. Not only is it inspired by God through the Holy Spirit, right? Uh, it's useful for teaching, and I think a lot of times uh, we, we, in our minds, we stop there. We're like, oh, this is great. We come to church, we go to grace group, and we learn good things. We listen to a Christian podcast, uh, and, and maybe we read a Christian book, and, and we learn good theology. We learn good doctrine. We learn all the facts about Jesus and His story. Scripture is good for teaching. But that's not the entire verse, is it? There's also, it's good for rebuking. It's good for correcting. It's good for training in righteousness. Those are all actions. They're all a call for us to change. And Scripture is, is valuable. It is essential for us as, uh, as the Holy Spirit continues to work in our lives to bring about change. It's not God who needs to bend. It's not God who needs to change His standards. We, we are the ones called to change. And I, I understand how easy it is. It's easy to walk through our everyday lives and point out the flaws and the shortcomings of other people. That's, that's super easy, you know. Pastor Mark needs to repent of his hatred towards cats. Fine, that's probably true. But I'm hoping that what we talk about this morning, I just want to redirect you back to the question. 
Because it's so easy for us to listen to all of these things and think, well, I hope so-and-so is listening to this. What needs to change in you? I need to ask what needs to change in me. And I'm hoping and praying that this, this will be maybe a less dramatic version of what Saul experienced on the road to Damascus. See, see Saul, he didn't think he needed to change. Saul didn't think that he was in the wrong. Saul was absolutely convinced that he was right. And then the Lord came along and said, actually, Saul, you're the problem. Actually, Saul, you're the one who's in the wrong. And I wonder if sometimes we need the Lord to smack us around and do the same thing in our lives. What may need to change in your life? It could be that you're in the same situation that Saul found himself, and maybe, maybe you're not right with God. We should probably start there. Maybe you're not right with God. Now, here's the good news. The wonderful news is that can change right here, right now. Romans 5, 8 says that God demonstrated His love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Verse 10 then says, when we were God's enemies. Think about that. That was the condition, an enemy of God not right with God, and Christ died for us. And while we were in that condition, Jesus dies for us so that we can be reconciled to Him through the death of Jesus Christ. How much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through His life? What he's saying is through faith in Jesus Christ, the resurrected Christ, we can be made right with God. Nothing, nothing will, will change your life more radically for the good than a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Nothing. Nothing will change your eternal hope from spiritual death, eternal death, to eternal life, except for faith in, in Jesus Christ as your forgiver of sin, the one who died for you on the cross through His resurrection power, when He raised from the dead three days later, to make Him the leader of your life and to trust Him to forgive you of sin, to change your heart. Nothing. You know, the Word of God, the Bible uses the word repentance a lot when, when talking about salvation from sin and salvation from hell. And if you're not familiar with that particular word, repentance is, is more than uh, someone who might say, sorry, my bad. You ever have someone say that? Maybe you've said that. You, know, you make a mistake, you, you, you mess up, and you're like, sorry, my bad. And it's almost like this, this surface level, not a big deal, let's just move on, uh, kind of uh, nonchalant kind of response to you or me making a mistake. Sorry, my bad. That's not repentance. Repentance means I was going in this direction the wrong way. Repentance means I'm going to turn around and go the opposite direction. I'm not going to keep going in the wrong direction. I'm sorry that I have been. It is my bad, but I'm going to turn around and go this way towards the direction God wants me to go. That's repentance. And if, listen, if you are not interested... And I can't answer this for you. You have to be open and honest with yourself. If you are not interested in your life being changed, then you're not interested in the gospel. You're interested in something else, but it's not the gospel. 
If you think that, that being right with God is just about knowing all of the facts about Jesus and being able to arrange them in chronological order, and maybe repeating some magical prayer or going through some religious uh, ceremony like baptism and, and treating those things in your mind and in your heart as if they are like an initiation into the Jesus Club. Just say the words, just do the religious stuff, get the membership card, and then it's back to life as always. Back to life as I always have. If that's what you think being right with God is about, then you don't understand the gospel. And so we, we have to start with this baseline question. Do you desire change? Because if you can't say yes to that, you're not ready for the gospel. Because the gospel is a message of change. If you answer the question, do I, do I have a desire to to change? Do I want my life to look different? If your answer is yes, then, then you are not only ready for the gospel, you're ready to receive Jesus Christ, to forgive you of, of sin, to change your heart, to change your life. And if you have not yet done that, if you've not yet taken that step of re repentance and faith in Christ as your forgiver, as your Savior, as your leader, I pray that you'll do that today. We would love, as pastors, we would love to, to talk to you. Tim and I are here. Pastor Caleb's around. We'd love, there's, there's, there's Christians in this room that you may know and trust. They would love to have that conversation with you and, and, and help answer questions that you might have and pray with you. And If you want to take that first step of, of, uh, on our website, there's a button there that says, I'm ready, and you want to read those verses that are listed there, great, just let us know about that. We, we want to be able to help you. Now I want to talk to those of you in the room who have repented of sin. Those of you in the room who, who have trusted Jesus as your forgiver, who, who desire to make Him the leader of your life. You know as well as I do that that moment of salvation, when, when we trust Christ, we are spiritually born again and the Holy Spirit indwells us. You know as well as I do that that is the beginning of change. It's not the end of the road for us. We don't evaporate into heaven in that moment, do we? And, and we still struggle every day. We still fall short of perfection every day. So what's different? Well, what's different is that we're no longer condemned for our sin because of Jesus. The righteousness of Jesus Christ has been applied to us and so God sees us as righteous, not because we are, but because of Jesus. What's different is that we now have the Holy Spirit who convicts us of our sin. What's different is that we now have the Holy Spirit to give us strength to say no to temptation to sin. This is all different after we trust Jesus as our Savior. We have the Holy Spirit to help give us uh, the, the, the spiritual strength to change our priorities, to change our desires, to change our behaviors, so that the, all of these things begin to align with God's standards, a desire within us to be more like Jesus. That's all different. 
I want you, please, please hear this point. Please don't miss this point. Stop asking the world what needs to change in you. Please, stop asking the world what needs to change about you. Stop it. The world says you need to change the way you look. You need to look like whatever standard of beauty they prop up before us. And if you don't look like this, you need to change. You have a problem. Stop it. The world says, change what you believe. If what you believe about marriage, what the Bible teaches us about marriage, what the Bible teaches us about sexuality, what the Bible teaches us about what is valuable and, and what our priorities uh, should be to align with God's priorities. If, if those things that the Word of God reveals to us, if they don't match up with what the world values and teaches, the world says, you and I are the problem. You and I need to change. No, we don't. Stop asking the world what needs to change in you or about you. The only one that we need to ask that question of is God. He's the only one we should be asking, what needs to change in me, Lord? God is the only one that we can ask that question of that, and we can be 100% confident that he, will, that he will only answer us based solely on His love for us. No other, there, there'll be no other uh, ulterior motive behind His answer except for His love for us. You can't say that about the world. And so we pray and we ask God, God, what, what needs to change in me? And when we pray that, maybe the Holy Spirit reveals something. Maybe, maybe you're reading the Word of God and, and something is revealed that needs to change. It could be an attitude. It could be a priority or behavior. It could be something in our marriage. Maybe something in, in, in our words. Maybe, maybe it's a form of addiction. And it's important that we can identify the what needs to change. But listen, that's only halfway up the hill. I don't know if you've ever said this. You probably have heard someone say this. I know, I know. I know I shouldn't. I know, I know. I know I shouldn't do this. I know, I know. I shouldn't say that. I know, I know. I shouldn't think this way or feel this way, comma, but, and then you fill in the excuse. I know, I know McDonald's isn't good for me. It will eventually make my heart explode, but it's so good. We go to McDonald's and we eat the, the garbage food. And, and an hour later, oh, why did I do that? Now, it's a silly example, and you can apply it to all kinds of things because people say that. I know, I know, I know. Okay, you know, quit putting the comma and the but after it. Once we have the answer to the what question, which is important, we have to move on to the how. We have to move on to the how. 
Maybe that's where you're stuck this morning. I, I, I imagine, I look around, I, I see your faces you know, a lot. I, 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 you're, you're consistent, and, and I've known many of you for many years, and, and I suspect uh, that for most of us, we could probably fill in the what pretty quickly. I don't think a lot of them, some, some are still learning the what, but I think most of us, we know the what, what needs to change. We know the standards of God. We know the boundary lines of God. Right? We know the what. But I think sometimes we might get stuck in the how. How, how do I, I, I know, I know, but I don't know how to change. I want to. I want this to change in my life, but I don't know. I don't know how. And I want to try to just summarize that and simplify it as best I can. I'm going to give you one word. One word that I, that I hope that you can remember and keep coming back to whenever you're struggling with the how. Here it is. You ready? Write it down. Humility. Would you just write the word down? I, I, I want to explore the word humility with you. When it comes to the how do we experience genuine change in our lives, let's start with Humility. First, we need the humility to say, I am not perfect. In fact, if you can do so in good conscience, would you repeat it out loud with me? I am not perfect. Does that feel good? I need to change because I'm not perfect. And, and we say it out loud. It sounds simple enough it's so easy. It's so easy to walk through the day and see the faults and the shortcomings in other people. I bet, honestly, let's just be, can we be honest with you? I bet if we had a notebook that we took with us throughout the day, every day this week, we just had a notebook and we had two columns on it and the one column said flaws and shortcomings in others. And we had a, a column for that. Flaws and shortcomings in my life. And we had a column for that. I would imagine that if we're honest, at the end of the week, we would look back at our little journal and, and we would see that we've got all kinds of things written over here on this column, flaws and shortcomings in other people. It's filled page after page after page after page. I would imagine at the end of the week, the other column, the flaws and shortcomings that we saw in ourselves it's going to be out of skew. It's just the way, it's just the way, that, we, the way that we are. I think, I think it's so important we just start with this humble posture that says, no, sometimes I'm the problem. It's not always you. It's possible that, that I'm the problem. I'm the one in the wrong. Now, it's most likely that if it's a conflict, both of you are in the wrong, right? Both of you have some things that need to meet in, in, in the middle. But if we're unwilling to say, I'm not perfect, I could be in the wrong, I could be part of this problem. If we're unwilling to do that, there's never going to be change. Why would you need to change? If you're already perfect, you can't change perfect. Why would you change perfect? Start with that. Start with just this humble posture. I'm not perfect. I know there's some things in me that need to change. Start there. Here's the next thing. We need the humility to admit that we can't change on our own. We need the humility to say, I need Jesus. 
and to stop this, this foolish notion that we can somehow close our eyes and clench our fists and just will ourselves to change. Stop it. We need Jesus. Without Jesus, we don't have the Holy Spirit. And without the Holy Spirit, we are left on our own strength. And that's like running up a hill with a Nerf gun against a fortified 50 caliber pointed down at us. It is not a fair fight. The gospel is a message of change. And it's, it's not just change of our eternal address. It is that. But sometimes I think Christians go through life and they think that's all the gospel is. Yeah, I had my eternal address changed from 666 Hell Street uh, to 777 Golden Lane Heaven, right? Good. That's wonderful. But that is not, that is not all the gospel message is about. It's about a change of heart, a transformation process of you and I becoming more like Jesus. And so when you and I struggle with something that we say, I know, I know, I know this needs to change. I know it. The first place we need to go for help is back to the gospel. See, if Jesus, if Jesus has the power to rescue our dead sinful souls from sin and hell, if he has the power to give us a brand new heart and, and, and transform us from spiritually dead to spiritually alive, if he has the power to do that, he has the power to change our desires. He has the power to change our priorities. He has the, the, the power to, to, to change us from being so selfish and self-centered to being more generous and kind in all the things that the Holy Spirit wants to do in our lives. We need the humility to say, I'm not perfect, I need to change. We need the humility to say, I can't do it on my own, I need Jesus. And sometimes, here's the third thing, we need the humility at times to say, there's also times when I need the help of others. I need the help of others. You know, Saul, Saul was used to being in charge. He was very powerful. He was, he was uh, the strong authority figure. People did what he said. They were afraid of him. And Jesus humbled him, took away his sight, which meant it took away his independence. He needed the help of his friends to guide him. Then he needed, he needed the help of Ananias to pray for him and restore his sight. He ne needed the help of Barnabas to vouch for him when no one trusted him. Sometimes we need the help of others, and it might be a Christian friend that we can confide in and ask them to help hold us accountable. It, it, it may be that we need the help of a Christian counselor who can help us unpack the, the why we think this way. Why do I keep doing this? I don't understand it. Why do I keep thinking this way? When this happens, I respond this way, and I don't like it. I don't want to be that person, but I don't understand why it keeps coming back. And sometimes Christian counselors are able to dig a little deeper and help us unpack the things that we don't know are there, help us see the things that we can't see. And you might need some help, and that's okay to have the humility to ask for help. I just want to leave you with a, a 
simple challenge this week. When it comes to change, the only one we need to ask what needs to change is God. So I want to challenge you to do that every day. Start today. Start today and just commit yourself this week to pray every day. Lord, what, what needs to change in me? Reveal it to me. Show me. It might be something you're aware of. It might be something you're not aware of that maybe you think you're in the right on and you're the problem. And by humbling yourself and asking God, show me where I'm in the wrong. Show me where I'm the problem. And the Holy Spirit leans on your heart and reveals something to you. It's great. Simple prayer. Lord, show me where I need to change and help me to change. Pray and ask the Holy Spirit to help you become more like Jesus. Have you heard that song on the radio? Uh, a, little, a little more like Jesus, a little less like me. Yeah. Make that your prayer. Make that your prayer. Lord, I, I want to be a little more like you today and a little less like me. However you want to word it, however you want to pray it, would you commit yourself this week to praying for change?